so Luke 7, 11 to 16. Um, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother and she widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying on him and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Thank you. Thanks so much for reading. Well, one of the things I think that's been noticeable as um, we've been grappling with this question, where is God in the coronavirus world, is that the number of people who are asking this question has expanded beyond what we might have normally expected. So, of course, we would expect religious people, those who have faith in God, whichever particular God or gods that is, to be asking this question. And, of course, um, in the scriptures, in the Bible, um, there's a rich tradition of grappling with this um, question or even if not the specifics of a pandemic grappling with the question of where is God in suffering think of the prophet Habakkuk or the book of Job or the very honest um, dark nights of the souls of the psalmists um, grappling with such questions but I think one of the surprising things has been the number of people who would perhaps be classified as irreligious who are grappling with this question as well so a recent um, study by Savannah Comrades Research had 26% of all adults have prayed for an end to this pandemic in the UK. And that is significantly higher than the number of people who would be regular committed to prayer normally. Um, and similarly, one in four have watched or listened to an online service, and that's even higher to one in three in the age bracket of 26 to 35. Um, year olds. So there's been a much higher engagement and a grappling with this question than we might normally expect. Um, not just the religious, but the irreligious, not just the churched, but the unchurched and the de-churched. People are grappling with this question. And really, therefore, this issue of the pandemic has shaken foundations. And when something is shaken, uh, it exposes things. Bits fall away and you start to see the foundations for what they really are. And I think we're all examining at this moment our foundations. Now, traditionally, Christianity has always had very compelling answers to the problem of suffering. But as I talk about that, I don't want people to think that um, there's something unique to Christianity. Very often, the problem of suffering is phrased as it's a problem for believers, um, as though other people who don't believe in God don't need to grapple with it. But actually, all of us need a philosophy of life that helps us cope with the realities of suffering and death. That is one of the key things. And I think that's why so many people are, are asking this question now. And in this passage, we see two unique pillars. I don't think they're the only two pillars, but they're two of the key pillars that every person I would put it to you needs to be able to cope with the type of strain that we're experiencing under this pandemic. The first pillar is we all need comfort in the midst of suffering. And the second pillar is that we need hope of an end to suffering. Uh, so comfort and hope. And what I want us to see by this amazing interaction of Jesus with the widow and Nain, as she's known, is how Jesus ministers comfort to her and how that comfort can be ministered to us today and also how he ministers hope. Let's think first of all about comfort to those who are suffering. Now, the situation that's described in the passage is desperate. Um, 
the death of anyone is awful, but the, the death of a child is particularly painful. Nain was about 14 kilometers outside of Nazareth, so Jesus would know the region well. Um, it's not entirely um, unlikely that he would, might have even known a bit about the family. And as he draws near to this woman facing the grief, she's facing what has been described by the author Nicholas Waterstorff as the neverness of death. He wrote this at the death of his own child. It's the neverness that is so painful, never again to be here with us, never to sit with us at the table, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to cry with us, never to embrace us as he leaves for school, never to see his brothers and sister marry. All the rest of our lives, we must live without him. The neverness of death, and this is what the woman is facing. And of course, she's no stranger to it. Being a widow, she's already lost her husband, and now she's lost her child. Um, the double pain must be acute, but it's worse still in a traditional society with no welfare state and in a, with a patriarchy, then her status and her economic well-being were bound up with the male heir in her family. Once she lost her husband, it was all, you know, kind of resting on the shoulders of the male heir, but now he's died. So she faces a very uncertain social and economic future. And into that situation, Jesus draws near to her. And I want you to see how he responds at verse 12 and 13. As Jesus approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now, I'm a bit shocked by that final statement, don't cry, because pastorally I know that I would never say that to someone who's grieving the death of a loved one, don't cry. But Jesus is unique, and I think he's uniquely able to say that because of how he ministers comfort and hope to her. In verse 13, we see, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. The phrase in the original is literally, he was moved with compassion. Now, compassion in scripture always means two things. It always means an identification that something is wrong and a willingness to do something about it. So whenever God has compassion, he's always going to do something about it. But first of all, we just need to realize that actually this is validating a deepest intuition, which is that what this woman is experiencing is wrong. And I just want to pause to reflect that there is a difference between pain and suffering. Pain, if you like, is the physical response, the reality in the natural order. Suffering is the human explanation, the moral qualities we attribute to pain. And one of the great challenges I think that the pandemic is forcing us all to grapple with is, do we believe that there is any ultimate sense in which what is happening is wrong? Not just painful, because pain happens all the time in the ecosystem without God, as it were. But is it actually wrong? Can we say that the number of deaths is wrong? The loss of even a loved one is wrong. When we say that, does that have any objective meaning? And part of the comfort Jesus gives is to say to us, yes, it is wrong. Small detail in the text that the dead person is being carried out, outside the, the town limits. And that's because in the Hebrew scriptures, death and the things associated with death um, if you came into touch with them, you would be declared ritually or ceremonially unclean. And in the Old Testament, things very often which were ritually or ceremonially unclean and therefore which we had to avoid were things which were associated with the wrongness of the world, death, spilt blood, um, things like that. 
And so this affirms our deepest intuition and said, it should not be this way. And not only that, then Jesus draws alongside and gives comfort. His heart goes out to her. And physically, of course, he is there. And what is remarkable about this is scripture often describes God as near to the brokenhearted. But here, that image, if you like, starts to take on flesh. Because here is God himself in human form, drawing near to the brokenhearted. David says famous words, doesn't he, in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And one question I think that we have to grapple with when we say, where is God? Is, is that just a platitude or does it have real substance? Ask Buddha, are you with me in suffering? And Buddha would say, my friend, suffering is something which you need to push through as the veil of illusion to attain nirvana on the other side. Ask a Hindu sage, are the gods with me in suffering? They would say, well, no, suffering is the consequence of karma. Ask Muhammad, and he would say, Allah may be in control, and this is testing your faith, but the idea of Allah stepping down and being with you in suffering, no, Allah is too high and mighty for that. Ask an atheist, a naturalist, is God with me in suffering? They would say DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music as Richard Dawkins once wrote. But ask Jesus Christ, are you with me in my suffering? And he said, for this reason, I was born into obscurity. I lived a life of poverty. I died in mystery. I was raised in victory so that you might know that I am with you in suffering. And the great work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is to witness to that and to say, Emmanuel, God is with you. Pastorally, I long to be able to say to someone that I can be with them in their suffering, but as a vicar, the best I can do is be there at points in their life. But what if you could be there with someone all the time? The spirit will never leave us or forsake us if we trust in Jesus, we're told. Well, that really is comfort. So comfort in the midst of suffering. Secondly, I want us to see hope of an end to suffering because comfort is important but at the end of the day we cry out is it going to end and if we say where is God partly our question is God are you going to be able to end it and one of the things we've been trying to do is of course all of us for different reasons um, has been trying to work out when or how is this pandemic going to end um, part no doubt of the media's obsession with the curve of the pandemic and flattening the curve and how long the curve will go on and is there going to be a second spike of the curve is grappling with that question is there hope and, and how will it end will it end through herd immunity or will it end through a vaccine or some kind of cure we don't know but we're all looking for signs of hope we'll look at verse 14 and see the masterful way that as luke retells these events he gives us hope then he, that is Jesus, went up and touched the bier, that's the funeral mat they were carrying the man on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, initially, you may see this, and if you're anything like um, me, when I wasn't a Christian up until the age of 22, you'd read this, and you say, this is just not this can't be true, this can't be a historical narrative, but Luke is a careful historian. He recalls the place where this happened, Nain, he recalls the people involved. In other words, and the Luke's gospel was in wide circulation within a generation. In other words, Luke is saying, fact check this. If you don't think this is plausible, then you have to grapple with the question how it is that 
Christianity grew in the very region where these stories could be um, evaluated and asked upon and say, did this really happen? Now, Luke is claiming history here. But also, it's really interesting just how beautifully it's written. Verse 14 in the original is stunning because it slows it down as Luke focuses on a, a series of discrete statements. Jesus went up. He touched the buyer. The bearer stood still. And as he does that, it slows the narrative down. So everything zooms in, if you like, on Jesus' interaction. So we wait to what's going to happen next. And then the miraculous happens. And one of the striking things is that Jesus does something which was just totally not allowed. He touches the funeral mat. I've already mentioned that death and things associated with death would make one, if you came into contact with them, richly unclean. And Jesus doesn't need to touch the mat because in just the early incident in the previous verses, Luke raises a centurion servant without, sorry, Jesus raises a centurion servant without even being there, just with a thought. So Jesus doesn't need to touch the mat as if it were to make the magic work. He does it to make a point. We are very conscious of our touch at the moment, aren't we? Um, it's strange. You, you go out to the supermarket and you're, you're trying desperately not to touch anyone and to keep distance. And it can actually be quite anxiety inducing if someone comes within that two meter boundary because we're so conscious of the, the potential impacts of touch. Well, Jesus here, when he touches, I want you to ask the question, is his touch the type of touch that contaminates someone? Or is it a very different touch? Is it the touch that we hope to get, the touch of a vaccine where it cures? You see here, Jesus touches the young man and there's no contamination going on. His touch here brings life as the young man comes back from the dead. Dr. Amgad Al-Harani was the first doctor in the UK to die of coronavirus. His brother described him after his death as a hero and I'd like to suggest to you that in the true sense of the word he is a hero because the truly heroic is someone sacrificially laying themselves down for the sake of another. The only way Jesus' touch here can bring life, the only way that it can be a touch that heals rather than contaminates, is because Jesus himself was allowed to be touched by death. It is remarkable that he, the source of all life, died that he the one who gives us health and vitality was afflicted on the cross that he who did nothing wrong the perfect innocent sufferer suffered in our place on the cross so that he can say to us if you trust in me my touch will bring you life and the remarkable thing about these um, this phrase at the end where jesus gave him back to his mother is that if we trust in jesus one day we can insert into that all that we have lost. Jesus gave our loved ones back to us. If we trust in Jesus, Jesus will restore all that is lost. All those who trust in Christ will be raised to new life. This world will be made new. No more death, no more sickness, no more pandemics, no more anxiety, no more lack of food. All of it will be undone because Jesus has a healing touch. Wishful thinking, you may say. Well, no, the Bible would say it is as sure as the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As I close, the Christian thinker Augustine um, has written that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way the world is and courage to do something about it. Jesus 
engages with the reality of the way the world is and his compassion shows that it shouldn't be this way but he has the true sense of courage to do something about it to not only minister comfort to us in the midst of suffering but also to offer us hope to an end to all suffering if we trust in him let me lead us in a prayer as i close heavenly father thank you that um, you're not remote and disconnected from our suffering that you do want to minister to us by your presence and by the reality of what Jesus has done for us, comfort to draw alongside us as you drew alongside in the person of Jesus Christ, this widow. And you have compassion on what we're going through, on the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable, but us also in our anxieties and in our fears and in our loss as well. But more than that, you offer us hope for an end to suffering. Help us wherever we're coming from to trust in that and to look forward to that day when one day all that is lost will be given back we ask it for jesus sake amen, amen.